everyone and um, welcome to Forum. Thank you for coming today. Before we get started, just have a little couple of bits of housekeeping. If you could all just make sure your mobile phones are off um, or put to silent, that would be great. And also, if you could please leave the screening room at the end of the session, just to give us some time to prepare for the next session, even if you, you will be attending because we need to reset. There's going to be um, about 15 minutes at the end for any questions. Um, but because we're recording today, please do wait for the microphone to get to you before you ask your question. That would be wonderful. Finally, we'd just like to take this opportunity to thank both Christie's Education and the Arts Council England for their kind sponsorship of Forum this year. Um, and also to Art Review for its partnership with us. Um, so, yeah. Just to... Um, let you know a little bit about yesterday for those of you who weren't here. Um, we had a really fantastic program starting off with uh, Echo Ocean, who did a wonderful keynote presentation talking about his exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery, um, Made You Look Dandyism and Black Masculinity, which was then followed by two um, artists' talks with Serge Atukre Clotti and uh, Michele Matteson. And throughout yesterday, all of our discussions actually returned to some really similar strong themes um, with issues pertaining to performing identity, particularly through dress, but also through concepts of uh, inherited materials. And this is probably going to be something that feeds into today, but that's where we're starting from. So without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Aaron Cohn. Aaron is the founding director of the Museum of African Design in Johannesburg, design curator of the upcoming AKAA Fair in Paris, and advisory board member of Flux Fair in New York. After finishing a degree in African studies at Columbia University, Aaron began working with designers from across the African continent. As co-founder of African Lookbook, Aaron placed over 30 designers from Africa in museum shops across the United States. MOAD presents exhibitions and educational programs, collaborating with partner institutions around the world and supports scholarship on African design. <coughs> Aaron is joined today by um, Mark Rapolt. Mark is the editor-in-chief of Art Review and Art Review Africa Asia. Sorry. <laughs> the first was founded like in 1949, <laughs> and the second he founded in 2013. His writing has appeared in a number of publications and includes catalogue essays on Slater Bradley, Alex Katz, Barty Kerr, David Cronenberg, and women artists of the 1960s, among others. Books include monographs on the architects Greg Lynn and Frank Geary. He previously taught at the Architectural Association in London, where he was also editor of the architectural journal, The AA Files. Welcome. Thank you very much. Mark, if you want to do an art review of Africa, we're, we need it. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> um, thank you, Koyo, for inviting me. Uh, I, I'm not sure how we got to today, but Koyo and I sat next to each other at a dinner in Moscow about two years ago. Almost said nothing to one another. <laughs> and at the very end of the dinner, realized who each of us were. And ever since, we've been saying that we need to have coffee and chat and figure out what's going on. And that hasn't happened, but maybe today it will. <laughs> um, 
But what I want to talk about is my sort of own perspective on African design, which I think is fair to be contested. And it's, it's very specific in a, in a context where I'm an American and I studied at Columbia University and at SOAS. And those are the places where this knowledge about uh, African art and African art history and design really is founded. And, and Koyo and others are, are making big strides in changing that. But it also comes back to this idea of why we decided to open a museum in Johannesburg. And I put question marks around it because it's always in a very tenuous place, fundraising, and also, as you'll hear, in terms of what it actually means, we're never necessarily sure. So I'll speak a little bit about what I think African design may be and where African design is in the world and in, in the context of today. So about three years ago, actually three years ago this month, we opened the Museum of African Design in a really fantastic 2,000 square meter mining factory from the 1930s in downtown Johannesburg in an arts neighborhood called the Mabonang Precinct. Many of you may know uh, a place called Arts on Main, which is based there, where David Crute's uh, print shop is, where William Kentridge has a, stu a studio. And this is very much the story of, of a revival of downtown Johannesburg, a part of, of South Africa that is seen as the most dangerous, the most violent, the place to stay away from, certainly in the early 2000s. And having these artists and these resources there led to gentrification, led to new development, and now the neighborhood, which is called Mabonang, or the Place of Light, has about 70 buildings, and the developers thought it would be really good for a neighborhood to have a museum. And so they acquired this building about two years before I moved there to, to work on it and open the institution. And they had a lot of, of ideas of what design was. They had different architects coming into the neighborhood to work on different developments. Uh, there's about 10 buildings that are, that are going through renovations every year and opening as residential, commercial, retail spaces. And moving from New York, I thought that we really needed to broaden the idea of a museum. It happens to be a design museum. It happened to be the first on the continent. But it also turned into a really great party space. This was uh, the after party for the Joburg Art Fair two years ago. We've done car launches. That's Nelson Mandela's uh, lawyer, George Bezos, standing in front of a portrait of himself. And in the very beginning, we, we just had this, this sort of phrase that the developers put together before I ever moved to South Africa, which I think sets up our notion of design in a really difficult context, and one that's important and one that I keep coming back to. But they said that the Museum of African Design is a multidisciplinary exhibition event and performance space with the core objective of advancing problem-solving ideas for Africa and beyond. And if you guys aren't cringing at that, then you're not paying attention. <laughs> um, the idea of design as a tool for problem solving is totally relevant, totally true, but you throw that kind of phrase and that kind of wording into an African context and you're immediately thinking about 
war, famine, hunger, uh, the problems that Africa has, and not really promoting in a positive light. And so I think instead of dealing with that and what that meant, the last three years we've sort of ignored that. So here are a few examples of exhibitions that we've had. Um, we opened with Southern Guilds, who also presented last month here at the London Design Biennale. They showed collectible design from sub-Saharan Africa, although primarily from South Africa, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, the sort of bordering countries. And this stuff sells at Design Miami, it goes to Basel, it's been here in London, it was in Paris last month. Um, and then we also talked a bit about fashion and fabrics and told the story of how this African wax print is not African at all. In fact, we have made it African and it symbolizes Africa, but the Dutch brought wax print from Indonesia as a trading tool. And in fact, the best wax print is still made in Holland. And even the fake stuff that's made in China says Dutch Hollandaise on the side. And to, to sort of balance that idea, we showed this really, is there anyone here from Nigeria? No, that's amazing. <laughs> sort of, yes, hesitant. There's never a shy Nigerian in a crowd. <laughs> uh, Makio has, has always said that in her fashion design, she would stay very, very far away from wax print. And she has maintained this great technique of indigo dyeing. Um, you saw Michelle Obama wearing some of her work. It's at New York Fashion Week all the time. And again, collectible luxury design. This year, another show we had, which was a really special opportunity because it, it broke the idea of sub-Saharan uh, in, in out of the equation, essentially, was uh, bringing this group of very young designers from Algiers to South Africa and commissioning them to do new work. And we were supported by the Algerian government. You can read into that however you want. I still don't know why they decided to pay for this project, but um, for the first time, Algerians came to sub-Saharan Africa. Came, and I say, I say that in a, uh, a joking way, but Paris is closer to Algiers than the southern part of Algeria. And so these designers who are living on the African continent have never thought about exhibiting in South Africa or finding it uh, as, as a meaningful opportunity to exhibit, practice, sell. And it was really great to bring them down. And those, those were kind of the interactions that we aimed for with the museum. And then, now that I know Mark taught at the AAA, um, I haven't shown much in here, but we've done a lot with architecture. And part of that being part of this neighborhood that is not a new neighborhood, but is actually being redeveloped and changed and, and using the built environment. Um, this was a project that we exhibited that the Tate Modern commissioned at Dual Art in Cameroon. And this was a public intervention, a fashion show uh, by two South African artists where they empowered people in the local community 
to, uh, who, who would never have access to these materials or this kind of freedom to actually put on a fashion show. Uh, and that I think may one day be projected at, uh, in, in the turbine hall at the Tate. Um, so three years into the museum, this year our board of directors sat down and we said, are we really achieving any of the, the reasons that we thought we needed to have a museum in the first place? And this is where I'm going. Ignore the museum and let's step back to design for a second. We, we changed the phrase a little bit. Um, and we, we changed sort of our uh, manifesto to uh, advancing problem-solving ideas. And instead of exhibiting or promoting, we really want to just explore what design can be and what the lens of design may look like in Africa. And what's come before us, as some of you may have heard yesterday, or some of you may have seen, was the Global Africa Project in New York City in 2010 at the Museum of Art and Design. And you can see uh, on the cover of the catalog, a Kahindi Wiley painting. Um, I was really hoping that Larry Stokes Sims could come today, uh, but she wasn't able to. Um, but she and I, since the museum opened, have been speaking about how do we uh, classify design. And her catalog, which largely is an art catalog, is still our Bible in a lot of ways for looking at design on the continent. And similarly so, if you come tomorrow, you will hear Amelie Klein speaking uh, about Making Africa, which is the show that she just curated at the Vitra Museum, which is traveling around Europe and America. Um, and so, sorry, pushing forward even a little bit further, um, we used to say that design was not, not different than art, that you can't actually define one from the other. Um, we even said that Africa is not defined as the geography or the people, but it's really a global conversation now. Um, <coughs> we even sort of said that the audience is not defined. Is this is our museum or is design really for students? Is it for uh, practitioners? Is it for the general public? And I think all of this sort of introspection and obsession with the fields, uh, and I don't mean this as a criticism for the art world, but it, it really is um, that things are slow. And in the background of all of this, a lot has been happening in Africa. So this is probably one of the greatest inventions and probably one of the best told stories about African design, as I see it. Uh, but M-Pesa, which was started in Kenya, is a banking platform on your cell phone. and. One of the cell phone companies realized that there was no, no way for the majority <coughs> of the country to bank. And so they said, well, you can go to the same place that you buy airtime for your cell phone and you can deposit cash on your phone and you can send it to someone on the other end and they can get cash out. And suddenly, uh, the majority of the Kenyan population was banking. On the back of that, IBM decided to move uh, and open their first research lab on the continent. Um, and I'm going to let sh we're going to watch this really quick video about it.
definitely an underlying thing that's in most cities. Traffic in Nairobi is uh, highly unpredictable. There's vehicles that are competing for space. You have many different modes of transport. There's so many things that happen with roadways and it makes Nairobi unique, challenging, but also charming. As more and more people move in to Nairobi to get access to jobs and be a part of the economic growth, then those roadways struggle. It's a city that's resource constrained and it's rapidly urbanizing. So we have to be innovative here and those innovative solutions will apply to most of the developing world. This started with a simple walk in the community of Nairobi. We ran into the head of environment for Nairobi City County. He said, can you help me with my trucks? We came with a plan there, we built the solution. From there, we started to build our models to study the data further. Urban infrastructure is the key element that allows people to get around the city in whichever way they choose. So when that doesn't work, people uh, have to think about how am I going to get to where I need to go, given that now there's a sudden traffic jam? Or how, how can I be sure that my kid is safe when they're riding on a boat, for example, with poor road quality at the same time? If you're running a small business, you're not sure if what it is you're selling is going to arrive in time in order for you to supply that to your customers. On commutes, uh, for me personally, I was a nursing mother and she needed her mom, so I needed to get back to my daughter. I think people were definitely surprised by the solution. They didn't realize that you could use an adapted smartphone to know about the road quality. We leveraged the sensor suite on these mobile phones. We've installed them into vehicles to adapt them in a way that we can now understand urban infrastructure. You know, I have never thought of counting potholes in Nairobi. Most of the solutions that, will, that you will find to help you understand your infrastructure is very costly and would not work for developing cities. So that's really how this project came about with the production scale of mobile phones. We're able to get all these sensors and all this functionality at a relatively cheap price. We've got the IBM Internet of Things connecting all these devices together. From that, we're able to generate insights that tell us a lot about the roads. This is not just a vision. We're actually implementing it. We are working with Nairobi City County. We have installed in a quarter of their waste collection vehicles. We've generated models to understand the road quality. These solutions here could potentially be more cost effective for some of the big cities. Now you are able to address the, the traffic problem globally. The data can definitely do more than we originally thought. This data can be leveraged by other businesses because there's so much entrepreneurial energy and there's a huge tech spirit here. And this data might be part of something big. It's important to give people their free time. For them, that's their opportunity to be themselves to pursue the things that they want to do. Um, so free time is, is everything to being an individual. So Nairobi is, is sort of considered the Silicon Savannah after M-Pesa, tons of investors moved there and 
in every neighborhood there's a, a co-working space and an innovation hub of some sort. And we've seen successful startups come out of, out of East Africa that are solving problems which, like this, can be exported to the rest of the world. And that really is the design thinking and problem solving that I think interests me and is not necessarily dealing with the third world African problem, but traffic is a global problem. And to go more locally, uh, Nando's, South African brand, South African concept, is one of Africa's greatest exports, I would say. And their advertising is, is known as, as cheeky around the world. This is their, although their headquarters are, are now in London and the majority of their stores are in the UK, uh, their central kitchen where all of the really strategic decisions are made seats about 400 people in Johannesburg and all of the furniture there is locally sourced. So this has been a huge undertaking which uh, ended about two years ago. And what they've decided off the back of this Nando's already has South African art in every store around the world, original South African art, and they're de facto one of the biggest corporate collectors in, in Africa because of that. They've decided that they also want to have this South African or regional design in their stores around the world. Um, and so they launched in the US about five years ago. They're opening stores around the world at a rate of about 25 a year. And at the same time, they're also updating their stores every five years. And so they've suddenly taken a really sort of dormant, quiet, uh, import-driven design industry in sub-Saharan Africa and said, uh, we need hundreds of chairs, tables, light fixtures, countertops uh, to send all over the world. One of the nice things that Nando's is doing, and I think setting a model in terms of corporate responsibility in the design world is they're saying that they will never order more than 50% of a manufacturer's capacity. And they're also uh, marketing and advertising who the designers are in the stores and online. And they're not taking any cut of sales. They're not helping uh, build uh, industry parks where they might um, be saving themselves money. They're paying the full retail price um, for these goods and shipping it around the world. Um, another South African export was this ad, which you may have seen for Virgin Atlantic, which won a lot of awards. So things have been happening. I mean, this is already uh, eight years old. And 
I think in, in sort of the world that we come from, we expect that we're always part of the conversation and that we're always there to review it. But the ad world, for instance, uh, a client comes up with a project and a month later they've got to have it done. And some projects like this one do win awards and get seen, but that's not the world that most of us come from. So design is really jumping those barriers. I'm going to skip to this. Um, some of you may have seen in the news that a Nigerian architect, Kunle Adeyami, who will be here tomorrow, won the Silver Lion Award at Venice this year. And this again is, is an African solution. This was the floating school that he designed uh, for Makoko in Lagos. His vision was to, to have hundreds of these schools uh, around the city because Lagos has literally run out of space. Um, and so he came up with these inexpensive solutions for schools, classrooms, community centers, um, movie theaters. It's, it's a very modular uh, solution. And uh, like most things in Nigeria, he's run into all kinds of, of trouble. And the school sat there for about two years without the city ever saying it was safe to use. Um, and it actually fell apart this year. But we'll talk to him about that tomorrow. Um, and he, he's very open to that discussion and to some of the challenges of working in Africa. Um, but I've already heard people say that they want to rebuild the school on the Hudson in New York. They want to take it uh, to Chicago and put it on the waterfront. Um, this sort of item, which was created and, and needed in Lagos, has now uh, become an international icon. Um, we're going to skip this ad. Um, so one thing that you won't hear from anyone else at an art fair is uh, a financial report. Uh, but I think this is really important in terms of understanding what the pressures are in Africa at large and also within design. Um, five, five and a half years ago, six years ago, McKinsey released a report uh, from their research division called Lions on the Move. And it projected that Africa would become uh, potentially the biggest uh, growing market in the world. And it, it launched this whole sort of optimism about the African economic landscape. Uh, covers of, of a number of issues of The Economist said, is Africa the next lion, referencing this. And about two weeks ago, they released their updated report um, called Lions on the Move 2. And if you want to download it, I've made a link um, at bit.ly, Lions 2. Otherwise, you can always search uh, Lions on the Move 2. It's a really fascinating report. And uh, it basically says that optimism in Africa is, is still there. If anyone knows um, what's happened to currencies in Africa because of the drop of oil prices, you'll see that uh, it's taken a huge hit on, on the, the continent at large, but as soon as oil prices bounce back, um, everyone sort of expects Africa to jump back to the top of this uh, growth map. And what is more important and more interesting is that by 2050, McKinsey projects that Africa will have a larger working age population than India, China, or any other region in the world. That doesn't mean there's jobs for them, uh, but that means that there will be uh, this, this huge 
youth population growing up and looking for work. And what goes hand in hand with that is that Africa is urbanizing faster than anywhere else in the world. Uh, they're saying that every year 24 million people in Africa move to the cities and that, that kind of growth is, is expected to, to continue into the mid-century. One of our favorite icons sort of noticed this about 15 years ago, Rem Koolhaas, and went to Lagos, which is by far the most uh, stressed and strained for space city on the continent. Um, nobody really knows how many people live in Lagos. It's assumed that it's between 15 and 20 million people. Uh, it has the potential to become the biggest city in the world. And he took these very sort of pornographic images from afar, from a helicopter, of what the organization of this, these informal sectors, uh, from buses to traders to um, just how people were commuting around the continent, or sorry, around Lagos. And um, that sparks this interest from people around the world to start looking at projects that could solve city infrastructure that could answer the questions of how the informal sector works. In Nigeria, it's assumed that at least half of the uh, GDP of the economy comes from the informal sector, but none of that money is taxed, none of that money is tracked, nobody really knows what's going on. Um, but Koolhaas, although he really didn't get on the ground and deal with any of these issues, he just took these beautiful pictures, uh, he sparked this interest with architects around the world. And we now see that in Africa, some of the most important architecture firms are, are doing projects. So shop architects in New York are working on a new innovation hub in Botswana um, for the tech startups. Uh, if, if there are architects in the room, you know there's a program called uh, Revit, which you use to design on your computer. This is the image that shows up on Revit for every architect in the world is their little like title page. Um, I was in Kigali, Rwanda last week at this convention center. It's a $500 million project that was just finished by a sort of bland, no-name firm in Germany. Um, and, and we see that the demand for new creation of new cities and new infrastructures is there. And wherever it's not being awarded uh, to African architects, the top firms in the world are actually jumping in. This one maybe not so much, but the one before and a few other projects. Um, and although the United States hasn't invested in infrastructure, they have laid the, the groundwork for design trade. And uh, the AGOA Treaty, which uh, started under President Bush's uh, presidency was just um, extended until 2025 by Obama. And basically, the AGOA Treaty provides 40 nations in sub-Saharan Africa uh, with tariff advantages and actually free tariffs into the United States on goods that are assembled in Africa. So that can be clothing, that can be design, that can be cars. Uh, South Africa's not included in this entirely. Um, but that means at, at, the, at the border and at the retail stores, items which are manufactured in Africa or designed in Africa and assembled in Africa are potentially 50% cheaper than goods coming from Europe or Asia. 
Um, and knowing that that is in place for the next 10 years is a huge, huge step. Um, not necessarily one that's been utilized, but we are seeing uh, clothing manufacturing pop up in Kenya and Ethiopia, and hopefully that'll, that'll grow to other parts of the world, or parts of Africa. So those are some examples of, of what is actually happening and what I think we've struggled to keep up with uh, in the museum or academic sense. And many of you are probably familiar with this timeline, but this is how I think of design in terms of African art. Um, the Brooklyn Museum in the 1920s was the first to really call their Rockefeller collection of ethnographic objects, um, fine art pieces. MoMA really put African art, for better or for worse, on the map when they likened it to the abstract artists uh, and modern masters who were inspired by African art in their exhibition in 1984 called Primitivism. Um, if you Google primitivism conundrum, you'll find out what that really meant. Um, and of course, Magician de la Terre put contemporary African art on the map just 20 years ago in Paris. And we really don't have the resources yet to talk about design. And so I think what's really exciting about this week and these forums is that we're creating the primary sources and we're creating the discussions, um, which really only started uh, with the, the catalog for the show, um, the Global Africa Project in New York in 2010. And so much like this sort of, this is how I look at design thinking, much like this process of taking uh, data from economists and anthropologists and health experts and, and really focusing on creating solutions using design which benefit individuals, we're sort of taking all these different fields that you wouldn't normally associate with, with art research or academia and trying to come up with how to talk about design. Um, and at the same time, we have to remember that it's happening. So. Uh, I didn't actually realize this, but the U African Union um, created an African passport, uh, which now ministers and presidents have. Um, nobody's talked about it, but Ethiopian Airlines was the first, uh, or sorry, was received the brand new Boeing 787 before an American airline did. Um, like I said, architects like Thomas Heatherwick are designing projects. This is the Museum of Contemporary African Art in Cape Town, which will open about a year from now. Um, countries are also playing in the design space. This is a North Korean uh, statue in Dakar, which Koyo can explain or try to. <laughs> um, last weekend, uh, David Adjaye's museum opened in Washington, um, the last museum to be, to be installed on the mall in Washington. It's a pretty big deal that it was done by an African architect. He also did a line of furniture. Um, if you go to Freeze this weekend, you'll see that they're the BMW is celebrating 25 years of the Esther Mishlangu car. Um, and so things are happening, and that's what I want to get across, is that talking about them is going to take us a while, and figuring out how to articulate all of this is, is important. Um, but we're also missing a lot of what's happening, and we're, we're letting it, it happen around us. Um, so the very last thing, and then Mark can tell me everything I said was wrong, <laughs> uh, is this video. So.
Thank you, everyone. Thank you. So I thought maybe um, it might be best to start um, roughly where you started with a sort of problem of problem solving, <laughs> or your problem with problem solving. Because I think after you introduced that, a number of the projects you introduced were effectively problem solving. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about why you have this sort of hesitancy to deploy the term. <laughs> um, maybe, it's, maybe it's not fair, uh, and, and I'm immediately drawn to talk about the examples of that, that make sense to me. Um, the IBM Research Lab, they've just opened one in Johannesburg as well. That's a great story. Um, McKinsey, or, or sorry, Deloitte in South Africa has started hiring designers to help solve projects, uh, problems that their management consultants are, are having. Um, PwC's also the, the accounting firm is also trying to redesign the, the way that accounting happens, and they're doing that from Johannesburg, not from New York or LA. But I think as soon as you take that, that and you start talking about how does that apply in the township, yeah. or how does that apply in the Makoko slum where Kunle designed his school, which the government wants to uh, uh, bulldoze every year, they talk about doing it. Um, it takes on a, a negative connotation. And I, I guess I struggle with, with how to teach that or how to explore that as an educator, which I think yeah. is our role in a museum, um, without just focusing on those really exciting um, monumental examples of how it is happening. I mean, maybe it'd be good if you could talk a little bit about how the exhibitions you put on in the museum come about. I mean, how do you select what goes in? Uh, good question. So we have a selection committee, um, but we are not a museum that has either a permanent collection or that has, at, at this young stage, the foresight and, and economic flexibility to plan five years out. So we pretty much know what's happening for the next two years. Yeah. Um, and when a project from a government like Algeria comes along that's fully funded, that unless it's, unless it's totally against what we're doing, um, we generally have to accept yeah. what they're doing. Um, but I think what you want to get at is how do we look at selecting design? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that this goes in and maybe you're not so interested in that. No. Um, it's. Uh, it's still, so there's a, there's a rule that the, the selection committee has, which is 80% of the content must not be South African, because there's plenty of museums in South Africa that deal with national culture and national heritage. And there's also, on the commercial side, plenty of, of opportunities for South African designs and South African products to be sold. So uh, whereas a Nigerian designer is most likely to come to London with their goods or, or go to the US. We're trying to encourage those kind of designers to come to South Africa. Right. And I guess you said there was, um, you showed us a few adverts, <coughs> and um, there was a sense, in, is there a sense in which the museum is also a kind of marketing? Um, that you're marketing an idea, of, I guess, of Africa on the one hand, um, and of what African design might be on the other. 
Yes, there's no doubt that there's a huge following um, like this, this week of, of what is going on in design. Um, there's only about 40 design museums in the world that are dedicated as such. And so uh, anything that any of them do is really scrutinized and, and people pay attention. Um, but because design has this commercial reputation um, and so many for-profit companies have designers on staff or uh, are employing contractors or, or have design firms on retainer, um, you'll see that most of those design museums have these corporate sponsors that are promoting uh, their products or their fields in a way that the art world uh, does a much better job of hiding. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess there was a kind of contrast between the objects you showed that may be shown in a design fair um, and uh, for a kind of rarefied market and something like Impesa, which is a much more general thing. Is that in a kind of uncomfortable balance? I think everyone's be? uncomfortable with collectible design. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you'll see in South Africa that about half of the designers that are working uh, in furniture are also, also fine art practices. Because it translates very well that uh, a, a table is going to be worth a lot more if it's a limited edition table uh, or if it has uh, an artist designing it. Yeah. And so it's not strange that at Artissima, there's now a design French fair. At Basel, there's, there's design fairs. In Miami, there's a design fair. It, at that level, it becomes like an art piece. Yeah. And is that still design? <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't answer that. Uh, if, if you consider it as, as something that's functional versus something that's not, um, then there's that uh, dichotomy. Um, but plenty of people would also say that art has function. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I think the function question is one you didn't really talk about in the talk. Um, to what extent do you think a kind of everyday idea of what design is is important to encompass within the museum? Because I think that's what's very yes. striking about design ideas uh, fairs is that the objects you see don't really conform to a general idea sure. of design. Well, and that's, uh, that is the struggle, and I think that's what the museum really wants to do, is, is figure out how do we, um, much in the same way that arts education for young, young students inspires them to think in different ways and to imagine and, and explore a creative side of their education, um, is that what we replicate in a design context, or do we actually talk about design uh, thinking and ideation and uh, coming up with ideas and improving upon them. And I think that, uh, that is a much more interesting thing. But uh, we need the examples and we need the research and we need the, the skills to, to implement it. Yeah. And you've got the school in the same building now. Yes, we have an architecture school in the same building, which is great. Um, they are on 10 different sites around Africa at the graduate level. Um, talking about real projects, which is great. Yeah. And how do they interact with what you do? So architects, as you would know, are constantly presenting to clients. Uh, and so architects 
are amazing at putting together exhibitions, much better than artists. <laughs> um, and architects also in the process, I mean, this is what I've seen in the process of putting together presentations, um, they have a lot of the same graphic design skills and fine art skills to interpret their work and, and propose new ideas in a school. Uh, like the AA, which I think is is very is is probably the the standard that the school in South Africa, uh, the University of Johannesburg, uh, uh, aspires to, is a very theoretical program, um, and so they're looking at uh, how do you look at a city from a bird's eye view, just like Rem Koolhaas did in, in one project, or they're looking at um, how do architects practice from abroad or afar in in a different culture and in a different continent. Um, and those are, those are things that, yeah, we can talk about it, but there are actual firms that are already doing it. A lot of them are Chinese, um, but more, more often now it's, it's the architect firms and, and the people that we, uh, we go out of our way in Europe to, to see their new building. So do you think in the light of that that maybe there's a role the museum can play in showing design that isn't African to encourage a dialogue? with African design? Yeah, well, is, is African design uniquely African? Yeah, but that would be the next <laughs> question. Uh, I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, we certainly have shown content that's not African, and I think if it's, if it's part of the discourse or if it's part of um, learning a, a field or a skill or the history of fashion or um, bringing something else into play, that's important. There's no reason to exclude something because it's not uh, in our title. Mm. Presumably you thought about that a lot when you gave the museum the title. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to know what kind of Africa you had in mind. I can say from the experience of starting Art Review Asia, it took us two years to work out what we meant by Asia. And half of Asia wasn't in Asia, and half of the places that weren't in Asia suddenly were, and all that kind of thing happened. Um, so I wonder how that process went for you. Um, we have never defined it, <laughs> and somewhat purposefully so, because I think so many people are breaking whatever definitions we come up with. So on our website, I, I believe it says African design is not, or African is not a geography, it's um, not just a diaspora, it's not just um, a, a, an identity, um, and this is, this is very much more so than our museum or the continent or the practice of design or art, but the notion of what Africa is is changing. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, mean, it has changed decade by decade for the last couple hundred years as soon as we started calling it Africa. Um, it was interesting, I think, that you showed some sort of more informal projects there. And I wonder, for a museum, it always seems to me that's an incredibly difficult kind of design to display or exhibit or engage with, because in many ways, what makes it interesting, I mean, as you pointed out when you called Rem's photograph pornographic, um, what makes it interesting is somehow killed when it becomes in a you know, museum environment in some way that's not really spontaneous but planned. Um, if so much of the interesting work is informal, how do you incorporate that into a museum without sort of ruining all that? Um, well, one example that I always love coming back to because it was one of, the, one of the first people I posed this question around how to talk about problem solving in a positive light 
was Paola Antonelli at MoMA when I was still living in New York. And if you go to the education entrance at MoMA, you'll see some of her acquisitions which have not been allowed into the main museum, <laughs> um, but are the first thing that students see when, when visiting, because they go through the, their own sort of back door into the museum. And one of the things that she is most proud of is something called the Million Dollar Block, um, which is a map that uh, academics at Columbia University put together, and it simply shows uh, of the five boroughs in Manhattan, which blocks received more than a million dollars a year in public welfare, so in food stamps or uh, Medicare or Social Security. And immediately, it's something that students can interact with upon walking into the museum that is not the history of Helvetica or the latest um, chair from Casino or Cartel. It actually relates back to their lives. So it probably is too informal for MoMA to consider it uh, on display in the main galleries, but being able to find those projects which can relate to different audiences and not simultaneously not be, be sort of community-driven, because that's sort of a bad word in the museum context is a community museum. Um, but how do you, and this is a, every contemporary art museum that's not in London, Paris, or New York is dealing with how do you stay relevant uh, to get feet through the door? How do, you, how do you get local audiences interested and feeling connected? Because every curator and every museum director at every museum in the world wants to be written about an art review and wants to be part of uh, this, this discussion of what's latest and greatest in the art world. And that's not necessarily what um, an immigrant from Congo living a kilometer from the museum uh, <laughs> cares about or can relate to. Um, so that balance is just as important as the collectible design versus problem-solving design. Yeah. And that's not design-specific, that's sort of art world. But yeah, a lot of the projects you've showed us, I mean, really have a community engagement with them. They seem to be all about community. Yes, maybe that's because I'm aspiring to, <laughs> to, to go in that direction. Um, but. It's, it's a challenge because a lot of designers don't realize that what they're doing is, is noteworthy. <laughs> they're um, someone who's working at an engineering firm in Pretoria or in uh, Accra is probably not thinking about how their work on a day-to-day -day basis deals with the design discussion that's happening globally, but they're um, coming up with new ways for people to work, they're working across borders, they're breaking barriers in their industries, but they've never studied what design is. <laughs> and maybe on the flip side, and because you um, brought up MoMA and its design department, um, I think you can't help noticing in museum shops around the world how many paper clips, scissors, are endorsed as being in the MoMA design collection and therefore being a part of the museum collection just becomes, or being exhibited in the museum, becomes a marketing tool that a manufacturer then exploits. Is that something you're conscious about? And were you kind of, it seemed like maybe you're quite easy with it at this stage. Uh, I'm easy with it at, the, at this stage for certain. Um, but I think uh, 50 years ago, we would have been saying the same thing about art and how things were going on postcards and posters. And still, if you go to an old apartment in, anywhere in the world, you'll see that people have framed 
a Rothko that says yeah. part of the collection. That, so it's, that is a, it's a very profitable exercise for MoMA. Um, and if you see the way that they bring journalists in to view the new spring collection or the winter collection of paper clips, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's shocking, um, but very, it's great. And, and some of those designers make royalties on it. They, they get kickbacks and, and it, it does fuel people's interest because tons of people go to MoMA just for the store. Yeah. Um, and there's a separate entrance for it because of that. And you have a store as well. We don't have a store. We, I mean, that largely was one of the ways that I first got involved in the museum was because I thought I was going to be operating the store for it. Um, but we, we've leased out space sort of on a yearly basis to different young designers. Um, and right now, those spaces are all workspaces, so they're not retail spaces. Um, and a lot of those designers are still thinking about how to sell to America or Europe. They're not really concerned with the local market. So um, that's a conversation that always changes. Yeah, is that something you want to change? I think so. Um, we've, actu we've actually thought about uh, creating a store and actually a box, um, if anyone wants to do this, go for it, but a box that can be sent to, I don't know, 30 museums in South Africa, which all have um, the same locally designed goods and the same uh, the same sort of platform because most museums uh, could make money off of that. Yeah. I think it might be time for um, to invite this community to join in. Um, Please. Are there questions from the audience? Hi, um, it's Alison from the Africa Report. Um, Aaron, I really liked your presentation where you sort of looked at urban development and you know, looked at people like an, an, an Lair architects and the floating school in Nigeria and IBM and um, working with local councils. And I think from working on the continent, our African governments have really let down their citizens um, in, in major cities across, you know, the continent. And I really like the way you, well, I, I, I guess the question is, do you think in the future that designers and architects are going to be the people who are having to step in and sort of solve the urban planning problems? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, last week I, I had the chance to speak to a number of business leaders and officials in Rwanda. Um, and they, in fact, before there was this Pan-African passport, there was the East African visa. Um, so that if you got a visa to Rwanda, you could also go to Kenya or Uganda or vice versa without having to really do any paperwork. Um, and those, I think, are, are, you're right, designers are already crossing borders, but the cost of doing business in Africa is expensive, um, South Africa being the exception. South Africa and Dubai are kind of the, the bookends for doing business in Africa because it's very inexpensive. Um, so. I agree that I think designers are going to lead the process, but it, it has to go hand in hand with government. Um, and there's a number of architectural projects uh, that uh, come and go as presidents come and go. Um, and, and we still see enough political influence. Um, I mean, the, the mayor of Johannesburg just changed hands. Um, and the former mayor was an urbanist. I mean, he had studied urban studies and he brought people in who were talking about uh, 
bus lanes and bike lanes, which maybe saying that in London is not such a great thing. Um, but uh, his replacement will undoubtedly put a halt to that stuff because it's seen as a political move. I mean, I wonder, just to follow up a bit, I mean, you touched on it just now, that sometimes good design can be a cover for bad government. <laughs> um, and that you displace the problem from where it really is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I, I keep going back to Rwanda because it's such a creepy situation, and I couldn't, I couldn't have this discussion in, in Kigali. Uh, it is a democracy, it's 22 years after the genocide, but the president uh, has, has made it a point that you either hit his, his goals and he looks at his government like a business, he sets KPIs and, and performance goals for his ministers, you either hit them or you get fired. And some of those goals have been uh, a car-free zone of downtown, Every motorcyclist and every passenger on a motorcycle has to wear a helmet. You're not allowed to chew gum. Um, it's a little bit like Singapore, but on the face of it, it looks like the perfect city. Um, and so that's what everyone's talking about, but what's, who knows what's happening <laughs> behind the scenes. Um, luckily, I think there's enough people watching Rwanda after 20 years ago to, to make sure that uh, everything stays above board, but you're right. Are there more questions? Hi, uh, my name is Maki. Uh, I work as a textile designer from South Africa, and I'm interested in learning. You mentioned a little bit about the furniture designer who is sort of always both going to art and like design section, but I want to hear a little bit more about like textile and fashion. What are the role of it in design and art, but also in the commercial space? How more and more designers are coming out of the continent or South Africa, like in our continent in general. But some of them are, a lot of them are still like not really being able to globally be successful. So wanted to hear your perspective. What are the opportunities and challenges? Um, so fashion is. Fascinating. Um, a large part of it goes hand in hand with real estate. Um, a fashion designer doesn't get paid until they deliver their goods. Uh, if you're delivering to Harrods, for instance, uh, which is obviously not the typical situation, you don't get paid for 90 days. So a fashion designer in Africa has to come up with the cash to pay uh, their manufacturers and the suppliers and shipping. Um, and outside of South Africa, the interest rates to borrow cash are 30%. Um, and so if you're in fashion it tends and successful, it tends to be someone who is, is independently wealthy. Um, and the same thing with uh, real estate, it tends to be uh, in West Africa, uh, expats that have come back with cash and are looking for places to put it. Um, and people are working outside, people are finding ways to work outside the normal financial institutions. But South, South Africa is eas much easier, but you, I couldn't explain to you why we have six fashion weeks in South Africa and 
barely any buyers or, or trade being done at them. It's turned into like a social kind of um, exercise to, to see and be seen at Fashion Week rather than to actually do business. Um, so that sounds very negative when I say it like that. Um, but I mean, Makio, who I showed, who d still does the hand dyeing process and is keeping that tradition alive, she makes maybe 20 objects a season. And she'll sell that out, but we're talking two, three thousand uh, dollars a dress, um, and I think that for the international designers, that's sort of the the successful model. Exactly. Were you also asking a little bit about the status of textiles within the realms of arts and design? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, uh, it, this comes back to manufacturing. We would love to see more, more capacity on the continent to manufacture textiles locally. In South Africa and Cape Town, I don't know who you work with, but there, there's some manufacturers there, um, and there's some cotton production uh, which is done locally. But uh, Vlisco, for instance, who does those Dutch prints, um, they now release their new designs quarterly because they realize that within two months the Chinese are going to start copying what they do. There's no way to, to, to implement um, IP and, and copyright protection on textile in 54 countries in Africa. Um, so in fact there's only one wax print uh, manufacturer which is owned by Vlisco, the Dutch company in uh, Ghana called Wooden, um, and South Africa has a very muted version of, of textile called um, shui shui, which uh, is not the bright colorful stuff we think of. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult that the minimum kind of orders that designers have to put together are thousands of meters um, if they don't have the facilities locally. I was just going to ask you about IP as well, because I think it's a big concern. I mean, what, what do you think can be done? Is, is there anything that um, your space can do in terms of having a voice there? So uh, intellectual property is, is something that the UN is thinking about. It's something that the African Union and a lot of governments are trying to put money to actually help change the laws and lobby for better IP law, but I, I think it's always going to be a sort of cat and mouse race. Uh, I mean, even the most established Italian designers have knockoffs that you can buy uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. So the, the best answer to how designers can protect what they're doing, I think, is to educate the buyers to know what it means to look for a made in South Africa or a made in Nigeria label. Um, to learn about uh, the schools and, and the opportunities to become designers. Um, certainly, uh, even in the United States, I didn't know that when I graduated from high school, I could go to, to a school to learn to become an industrial designer. Um, and that, that issue resonates in, in South Africa and across the continent, even though there are schools and there are programs. Um, and if it comes to someone buying something at a shop, uh, they're not going to care about what the origin or the provenance of, of that concept was unless, unless we start talking about uh, 
local production, local design, um, at, at museums and in schools and in publications. Are there any more questions? All so shy. Um, <laughs> well, I'd like to thank you all for coming and particularly for, to Aaron for sharing thank you. your experiences with us. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.